Today, we have uh, Christian Ware is going to bring us the word this morning, and I'm excited about that because we're continuing our series in Acts. But what I, I like, uh, uh, we have a few guys that meet together and talk about the preaching uh, that's happening in the church and the preaching di- diet that is happening, and um, I've just enjoyed hearing Christian's perspective as he's brought that, and so he will bless us today as he brings the word. So welcome Christian up as he brings the word, and kids, you are dismissed. Well, good morning, church. As uh, Pastor Jeff uh, said, my name is Christian Ware. Uh, My wife and I, Caitlin, who you saw on stage earlier, are members here at Christ Community. We have our son, Henry, and actually today have a bunch of family here, uh, and there are far too many to name, so thanks for coming out, but you don't get the honor of calling each of you out individually. Um, So I want to start off this morning with a confession, which may make Jeff a little nervous, that being the first phrase that I come out and say. But I, I genuinely believe uh, that a mark of a Christian, and not just by name, but of faith, should be confession. And today's sermon uh, revolves around unity. It revolves around biblical community uh, as we continue our series in the book of Acts. And my confession is that I do not feel even the most equipped in this room to be sharing this message maybe even borderline hypocritical with some of the things that I think that the text is going to call us to and that I'm going to ask of myself, ask of my family, and ask of you guys, my church family. The last year, uh, we, we moved back to Louisiana about a year ago, and it's been a little bit of a whirlwind. And there, there are some reasons why uh, life's been busy and, and community hasn't been as strong. And I could give you probably a, a list of them, and you would say most of them were valid, but I don't want to do that. Uh, I just want you to hear, uh, as someone who is, is humbly presenting God's word this morning, that this is something that I haven't perfected. It's something that I'm far from perfect in. And this isn't to get some sort of false pity. This isn't to get some sort of, uh, to give you some sort of false sense of humility. Uh, but genuinely, I just wanted you guys to know where my heart and where my mind were at as I was preparing this message. And so before we uh, get into our text this morning... I want to offer just a a quick recap so that we're all kind of on the same page as we read our passage. So in the previous four and a half chapters of the book of Acts, we see quite a few things. Big events have happened. Uh, The resurrection of Christ, the day of Pentecost, uh, believers being multiplied, and even last week we see a a bit of persecution uh, begin to happen. And there's a persecution of Christians from non-Christians, but also, like last week, we saw persecution from people who claim themselves to be believers, trying to squash out the boldness of the apostles as they preached the gospel and saw lives transformed. And so, with that, uh, we are going to get into a little bit more of the, the practical side of things today. We see this community being built. What are some of the, the outpouring that happens from that? What are some of the things they are doing, the things that we can apply to our life? And that's where we find ourselves in Acts 4, 32 to 37 today. If you want to turn your Bibles there, it should be on the screen behind me. Acts 4, 32 to 37 says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were 
as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it, the, laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each of, of each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I ask that your word um, would be preached well today. Lord, that your word would be at the forefront of anything I have to say. Uh, Lord, that your truth uh, would be made clear. Lord, that your truth would be made practical. Lord, that as we read the history of the church, of, of former, of older saints, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged. Lord, that our understanding of community, our application of community would be transformed uh, by your desire. Lord, that it wouldn't be what we think should be community. It wouldn't be what we think is uh, right for the amount of time spent with other brothers and sisters, Lord, but uh, your spirit would convict us that we would lay ourselves down. We would lay our our preferences down. We would lay our time down, our me time down for the sake of you and for the sake of your people. So, Lord, help us. uh, Be with us here this morning. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. So as you'll find in your bulletin, we have three main points for today. The first one is community is not natural. Natural should be in quotations, and I will explain that here a bit more in a minute. Our second point is community starts and ends with God. And our third point is community is a calling for all believers. So as we look back in the passage, we see the first thing that Luke really makes a reference to. He says, full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Without context of reading the past three and a half chapters, uh, it's easy to overlook this. It's easy just to assume that these are just people of church, and they just get along, and they all have things in common because they're from the same place, and they go to the same schools and job and workplaces. But that's not what happened. Right, if we look back in Acts chapter 2, we see this is actually a very incredibly diverse group of people. These are people from a vast region who have gathered together for the day of Pentecost, a lot of which who have stayed in the region because of what they've experienced by the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is not just some group of guys, a group of families that had a bunch of things in common and decided to start a church. In Acts 2... Uh, Actually, there's a little bit of typo, so I'm going to have to read further than what I gave y'all. Acts 2, 5 to 11, we get that description of what are these people like? What commonalities do they have? It says this, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each of them was, each was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each other, each in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's quite the list of people. That's quite 
the uh, diverse audience of people who have gathered here for, to celebrate a holiday and who have stayed because of the amazing work that was taking place at the day of Pentecost. So they had one thing in common, right? They all gathered for a common purpose. They all gathered to celebrate this Jewish holiday. But I would imagine, other than that, they all looked pretty different. Not just in, in physical features, right? But they all probably had different preferences. They had different cultures that they brought in with them. Potentially, the Libyan might complain about how the Mesopotamian made, made dinner. Right? Maybe he overcooked the chicken. Maybe uh, the Judeans dressed differently from the Cretes, and they were kind of looking at them funny as they were also celebrating this holiday of the Lord. Maybe they disagreed about politics. Maybe they disagreed about their favorite ancient sports teams. Who knows if they had (laughs) sports teams 2,000 years ago. Uh, I hope so. I think they'd be bored. Um, My point being is that they were all vastly different, and they had many things that they could have disqualified themselves from being a united people, but rather they recognized what the most important thing was. And the most important thing allowed them to set aside all their other differences to be of one heart and one soul. And this leads us to our first point of the morning. Community is not natural. And I'll add this for clarity. Community is not natural to the flesh. Community is not natural to the sinful heart. And I don't think this is, this isn't news to any of you. Right? You look throughout the Bible, you look throughout history, You look throughout your own life, potentially even from this morning to this week, and it is riddled with conflict. It is filled with people arguing. It is filled with people fighting. It is filled with, the history is filled with murder over a a litany of things. Some big, some incredibly small. We argue over the big issues. We bicker over the little issues. We argue over important things, but we also argue about how the dishwasher is loaded. Right? We are a people who our natural state of our heart is drawn towards conflict. It is drawn towards dissension. Dysfunction and conflict genuinely, I think, is one of the native languages of our sinful heart. But that is not what we see here. That is not the record that Luke gives of this church in Acts chapter 4. And we already know from chapter 2 and, and before that what some of the things they were doing. Right? It says they were praying for one another, they were eating together, they were selling possessions, they were attender, attending the gathering. And these things that they were doing are important, and these are practices that we should model our life after. But what I want to get at today is these things that they were doing were actually just a representation of something that already took place in their hearts. Their ability to set aside their differences comes from the unity uh, that was amongst them through the Spirit of the Lord. And we see this phrase in this first verse of one heart and one soul. What does that really mean? Is that like a fancy thing we put on a water bottle or a doormat uh, with some fancy text and font? The Jewish people uh, had a little bit of a different understanding of some of the functions of uh, what made us who we are. Right? When we think of a heart, we think of the thing that pumps blood through our bodies, gives us oxygen, keeps us running. I'm sure they had some understanding of that, but that's not exactly how they viewed it. Same for their understanding of the soul. Right? Their understanding of the soul, it was, it was the essence of a person. It was, it was the life force. It was, it was something that maybe couldn't even be necessarily explained, but it was that thing that made them a person. 
And the heart was, was not just a function of the body, but a heart was their convictions. A heart was their passions, their desires. Again, these are, these are metaphysical attributes given to a, a real functioning part of the body. And so when they talk of one heart and of one soul, it has a significant meaning that maybe we today wouldn't pick up as we were just reading our Bible in the morning. And so these early Christians understood there was an order to the way things happened. They were of one heart because they were of one soul. Right? When the soul was changed, when the soul was transformed, everything else that they used to understand how a person functioned also had to follow. Whether it was the heart, whether it was the mind, it was their strength, everything revolved around the soul. But how does that change? How do we get the soul to change for everything else to follow? Some of the most hopeful, but also maybe concerning uh, wisdom I can give you is that we can't really do much. It's not our responsibility to change our soul. The only thing that we can do to affect the soul is to accept the free gift that has already been given to us. See, the work of the soul is done by the Lord, and all we have to do is to believe in him and repent of our sins. And then, through his spirit in us, is when we can start to work on these other things with the help of the Lord. You see, it's through the empowerment of the spirit within us, that's when our heart starts to become one with others. It is a passive work done by the Lord, but it is also an active work done by ourselves. See, there's this reality, uh, it's a big idea and difficult for me to comprehend, uh, that we are both sinful and holy in the eyes of the Lord right now. We are holy by what he calls us, we are holy by how he sees us, with also battling with this reality that we're also a sinful people until we are, uh, we are with our Father again. And so we're in this in-between gap. We're in this in-between where we are holy yet sinful, and our, hopefully our hearts, our minds, our strength are, are migrating more towards the holy and less from the sinful. But the reality is, on this side of heaven, we have to fight for a oneness of heart. We have to fight for a oneness with our brothers and sisters here in Christ for unity. To resemble what Luke lays out about this early church of the miraculous things they were doing because they were putting in the work. After they realized the work of their soul had already been completed. And so, more specifically, how can we as a church, not just the universal church, but how can we as Christ's community be of one heart? And the easy answer uh, would be to tell you a bunch of things to do. It would be easy to point at all the things the church and Acts were doing and just say, do that. However, I think the most helpful thing that we can take from this passage is actually if we maybe reverse engineer that equation. We don't look at what we can do and hope that it transforms the rest of us. We look at what has been transformed and use that to propel us into the things that we can do. And so I believe that the start of being of one heart doesn't start with giving of the things you have, but actually giving of who you are. We first give ourselves to the Lord, and that's where the soul work takes place. And then we give ourselves to his people, and that's when the heart begins to be transformed. If we take Jesus as an example, 
Right? He did great things for people in need. He, he, he met the needs of people who were hungry. He met the needs of people who were sick, and he healed them. But I think it would be fair to say the primary work of Christ on this earth was at a soul level. Because he knew all those ailments that he healed. He knew all the fatigue that he healed, all the hunger that he cured. That's a short-term issue when you consider eternity. And so I would push us to share that same uh, philosophy as Christ. That we happily meet the needs of others while also understanding that the, the most important need we can meet is to bring them Jesus and allow him to do the soul work. And so I think the best thing we can do is to give ourselves. We give our time. We give our time to people who feel forgotten and cast aside. We give our compassion to people with a grieving heart. We give our laughter to celebrate things with others. We give our prayers to those in need. We give our insight to those searching for wisdom. We give a seat at our table, not just to provide food, but to provide the conversation, the joy, the comfort that comes alongside that. And this, I believe, is the hard work. It is hard to trust others. It is a big deal to invite someone into your home. It is difficult to put faith in people as we have been let down time and time again. It is even more difficult to forgive a brother or sister who has wronged us. A brother or sister who sits in the same row of the same pew as you and to forgive them. And this one is difficult for me. It is difficult to give up your me time. It is difficult to give up the time you deem that you need to recharge, that you need to be an efficient person, whether that be at work, at home. But I know that this is the work that it takes to be of one heart and one soul with this church. And this is when the transformation, I believe, of the local church, of the universal church, the transformation of the people in this room will take place is when we are willing to do the hard work of giving of ourselves. If I can give an example, about a year ago now, here in like two weeks, uh, my father passed away, and it was an incredibly difficult time for me. And I think about the things that helped me get through it. What didn't help me get through it, it helped, but the primary source of help was not the things that people would give me. Cards were nice, meals were great, flowers. You can, you can li- think of a list of things that you might have someone uh, deliver at someone's house who's grieving. But the real things that helped me were my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters who I would say were of one heart. Brothers and sisters who would, who would rather sit there and empathize with me than try and pass me off to some sort of physical thing that would help me feel better. My sorrow at a heart level, and even felt like a soul level at days, was not solved by material things. But it was helped by other people who understood. People who knew and could remind me of the truths of Scripture. So I think that the best gift that we can give to one another as brothers and sisters is ourselves, is Christ in us. I'm not trying to hate on giving of material things, giving of physical things, right? There is a strong precedent in Scripture to serve the community, to serve the body. And it is a wonderful thing to be able to give what you have in excess to, what, to people who have, who have need, 
And there's a time and a place for those things, just as Jesus met those needs, just as the early church met those needs. And we follow this example by the saints of old. But we have to understand as they're giving, it came from a gospel understanding. It wasn't for the sake of giving them a, a shiny gift. It was because of their understanding of the brothers and sisters. They were invested in their lives. They were invested in their lives because of the precedent that Christ had laid out. And they knew their needs. It is really, it is easy to drop money in a bucket of someone on the side of the road if you have an excess. It is much more difficult to sit around with people and learn who they are, learn about their struggles, learn about their needs. But I believe that that's what it means to be of one heart. That's what it means for the gospel to infiltrate our giving. And again, this is, this is not natural, right? Unity, community is not natural of the heart. Giving is, is not natural. These are things that Christ himself has to work on within us. So how do we do them? How do we get to a place where we, we desire to do these things? Well, I think that we see this later in the text as we see uh, the apostles were granted great power and great grace. The reality is our desire is only going to be built by the Lord. If we just continue to look in ourselves for charity, for hospitality, we'll probably just keep ending up finding reasons why we shouldn't be those things, for security, for whatever it may be. The gospel is the only way that this community is achieved. This oneness is achieved. Which takes us to our second point this morning, that community starts and ends with God. In Tony Merida's book, I think he's been referenced before in this series, he asks a question that I think really sets up a strong foundation for our understanding of community. He proposes this question, he says, how does established unity become experienced unity? I don't know whose water this is, but I'm taking it. <laughs> it's mine, thanks for sharing. Um, so let's, let's first understand what community, what unity is it that's been established? If it's our job to experience it, we have to know what we're looking for, right? We have to turn to God. And if we look at the essence of who God is, if we look at God and his triune nature, that is where we find the most perfect and complete form of unity. We see harmony amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is expressed in these three, uh, these three ways. And we, we, what we don't see is that the Father trying to fight, posture himself for more glory. We don't see the Son in disobedience to the Father. We don't see the Spirit uh, trying to work around to also get his popularity for the moment. These are, this is one God who exemplifies perfect love and perfect unity that we can turn to as we try and understand how we can implement this in our, our lives with one another. I th- think of when Christ is in the garden. Right? He is stressing so much the place where he is sweating blood. Right? He is anxious for what he is about to endure on the cross. And he doesn't whine to the Father. He asks the Father that if it, if it be his will, he would remove this from him. And he doesn't. And Jesus doesn't run away. Jesus doesn't pout. He's in submission. He's in unity. These are, this is a God who is unified. I, I think of the movie Hercules. I don't know if any of you have seen it, the old cartoon. 
there, there are scenes where we see all the gods up on Mount Olympus, right? And they're all arguing, they're all fighting, and the, the, the reality of the people on earth is being um, altered kind of because of their own little bickers. And it's a, it's a funny scene uh, just to see these all-powerful gods arguing about the littlest of things. But I wonder how much more chaotic would be if that was actually our truth. If we served a dysfunctional God, but thank the Lord, that is not the type of God we serve. When we see that these people in Acts had everything in common, that is because we serve a Lord who had everything in common. And so how do we experience this loving community that was established by God? There are a couple of verses that I want to point us to this morning that I think will help us understand um, how, we, how we pursue this, how we uh, arrive at this. I want to first look at 1 Corinthians 1.10. This is Paul urging the church in Corinth. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there may be no divisions among you, but that you are perfectly united in mind and thought. If we pursue others in the name of Christ, I don't think that Paul would ask of things that weren't possible. It is possible through Christ's power that we might be perfectly united in mind and thought and soul and heart with one another. In 1 John 1.7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. How is this accomplished? By walking in the light. By pursuing the Lord himself. In the Christian faith, uh, I believe there's a bit of a cycle. As we pursue the Lord... What has to happen next is a pursuit of his people. We see it from precedent in scripture. We see it from instruction in scripture. We see it through the way the Lord treats us and his desire for us to treat one another as he treats us. But it is always going to be a pursuit of God that leads us to a pursuit of his people, that leads us to pursuit of God, that leads us to a pursuit of his people. It's a cycle. And biblical community... Local church, Christ community, community. It's a cycle that if we all prioritize the Lord, I believe will lead us closer to one another, which then will lead us back to him. Which is encouraging because if the cycle stopped at pursuing one another, every letdown would be the end of the cycle. If we start putting all of our end faith in other people, it won't last very long. Because when people fail us, it pushes us back to God, who reminds us to show them mercy, who gives us the power to show them mercy, just as he has shown us mercy when we have screwed up. And so, when we pursue the Lord, when we pursue other people, let this be a little bit of encouragement, as we see in this text. It's not just for the sake of others. It's not just for the Lord, but the Lord blesses us, which should not be our motivation, but I think of the eagerness of God to bless his people. We see in the early church was blessed because of their pursuit. The apostles were blessed because of their devotion and their witness. We see it says in one manner in which they were blessed with great power. And this isn't referring to great vocational power, 
great influence in the community. Right? This power that they received was from the Holy Spirit to continue in his work. Not to continue in our own work. Not to continue in our own selfishness. Which, shout out to the apostles, they did a great job of. Right? They used this power in a way that sent them back to Christ's people. And as Christ's people multiplied, it sent them back to the Lord. And this blessing that the apostles received, this blessing that we receive, it's not one to be hoarded. It's not one to be kept. But just as the apostles did, it is ultimately for us to bring back to the Lord for his glory and bring back to the Lord's people for their sanctification. And as we think of blessings, uh, we typically as I think of them as something for us. We think of gifts, right? When we get a gift at Christmas, we unwrap it and we go put it in our closet. We don't go put it in somebody else's. But the wonderful thing about the Lord is sometimes that's the truth. What we see in the church of Acts is that all their blessings that they received was not seen as a blessing for them. Their blessings were were so loosely held that they were willing to give up everything that they didn't need for other people sell houses, sell land, sell field, because they understood that their blessing was not for them. Their blessing was for God and his people, ultimately. And so we also see a gift that the apostles encountered was grace. And the the grace that you hear in this passage, uh, as written in the original language, may may not be the grace we think about. The best synonym for this uh, form of grace would actually be favor. You see, the Lord blesses the faithfulness of his people. Lord shows favor to his people. And not, not a reluctant favor. Not, also a, not, not a transactional favor that if we do a certain amount for the Lord, then he blesses us. But I, I believe that the Lord is eager to show us favor. The Lord is eager to show us favor for our faithfulness and even sometimes unfaithfulness. I think of the multitude of times that I feel distant from the Lord and then out of nowhere some blessing shows up. So I don't think it's, it's reactive. I don't think he measures our sin against our holiness and then gives us favor. But this favor, this power that they experience, the apostles that we experience as people, are gifts, but I think they're also tools. They're tools of ministry. When I think of, of favor, um, I think of... Okay, the Lord's going to help me now. He's going to somehow, through the government, relieve all my student debt because I'm being a good Christian. Or maybe because I'm being a good Christian, he's going to show me favor and let me get a good night of sleep with my son. Maybe. But ultimately, if our hope is in the gifts that we received rather than the person who gives them, we're never going to understand the true value of the favor that he shows us. What I would like us to do what I try to remind myself of and I fail at continuously is that we often, we think small thoughts. We think of small favors. But part of being that oneness in mind is what if our favors that we wished were less of ourselves but more of what the Lord could do through us and less for us. Lord, help us not have a small mind for gifts that we can hoard for ourselves. Our final point this morning is that community is a calling for all believers. With every sermon, every podcast, anything that we we consume, we always ask the question, 
okay, what can I get out of this? I've given us a lot of kind of thoughts, a lot of um, postures of our heart, postures of our mind, but what can we get out of it? In reality, um, this community, as seen in Acts, is something that we are all called to. As, as creations, right? I believe the Lord has unique calling for each of our lives. Some of us are called to different vocations. Some of us are called to different uh, people groups. Some of us are called to meet certain needs in the community. But there are also callings that are a standard for all the children of God. And I think this calling of community is, is not one that is only designed for certain people who have a larger social capacity, who have more time on their hands, who have more things to give. This is a calling for anyone who wears the name Christian, who considers themselves a brother or a sister of other Christians. And I, I, what I'm not saying is that we have to exactly replicate how the people, the church, and Acts were doing this. It's not even entirely possible these days. Uh, not to say that it's impossible. Uh, it is improbable to be able to replicate what they were doing, to live together, to worship with one another on a consistent basis, to sell everything they have, And I don't think this is the calling the Lord has placed on us. But what he has called us to is the heart that they shared. The heart for community. And I would argue that the heart is probably more important than the practice itself. Because we're going to get it wrong. We're going to mess up even as well as we try and preach practicality, even as well as we try and understand uh, how we can apply scripture to our lives we're going to mess it up. We're going to be sinful. We're going to ruin relationships. But a heart that is after community rather than a, a, a practice of community will always return to the Lord, which will always have us returning to his people. And we see a positive example of this, this pure heart as listed at the end of this section uh, through the story of Barnabas, or the sentence, sentence of Barnabas, right? He uh, is faithful he gives, uh, he laid his things at the apostles' feet. And as we'll find out in a few weeks, uh, there is definitely a difference between laying things at the apostles' feet with a pure heart, with one heart, and laying things at the apostles' feet with a defiled heart. And we see a sad reality of what happens to two other um, people, a part of that one church, here in a few weeks. But this is not what we see with Barnabas. We see that his name is now forever written in history uh, because of the posture of his heart, not just because of the things that he was willing to give up. And so if I, if I could brag on you guys for a minute, as Christ Community Church, we think of the heart, we think of the posture, we think of the way that we show Christ to others. Uh, I want to affirm you guys. I think that y'all do, I'm a part of this, so I can say we, I guess, although it feels uh, self gratifying. Uh, You guys do a wonderful job at fostering and welcoming a loving community inside of this place. I see at the door, there's always like 10 people at the door, which makes me a little anxious. I'm like, people are going to navigate through traffic. But also, I think it really is genuinely a sign of your desire to welcome people in to this house of the Lord. Men, women, young, old, you all put this intentional effort forth to make those who walk in those who sit in these seats feel welcomed, feel a part, feel a part of this one church. 
you guys do such a good job of this. Here, I'm going to give some of my uh, defects to the person. Uh, some of my sinfulness, uh, there are days where I'm ready to get out of church and go eat. There are days I'm ready to get my son home and take a nap, but I know I'm going to get stopped by people. I know someone's going to want to have a conversation. I know someone's going to want to talk. And inwardly I groan, but I, 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 have to find, I have to find the thankfulness knowing that it's not just because you want to uh, check off a list. It's not because you just want to be seen as a good person. I genuinely know that it's your, your heart you want people to feel the sense of community uh, in this place. But if I can challenge each of you, and this is more of a challenge for myself as I, as I read through scriptures, as I prepared for this sermon, but I feel that it is an appropriate challenge for us as one church. What if the doors of our homes were as welcoming as the doors of the church? What if we were as eager to invite people in our doors as we were to meet them at the doors of this building? What if our dinner table with guests was as lively as the conversation amongst the pews after church? What if I stopped finding excuses as to why dinner and different hangouts wouldn't work because of my schedule? What if we set aside what we thought was our version of community outside of these church walls and allowed what Christ has already set in place to be our guide for biblical community? What if we allowed Scripture to inconvenience us for the sake of the glory of God and for the sanctification of his people? What might this church look like if that was more of a reality, if we did more of those things? And I know that these things are already happening because I've been in your homes. But what if our desire to continually look more and more like the early saints, like the precedent that the Lord himself has set, what if we desire to be like that more each and every day? There's a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, who I think is a uh, frequent reference here, uh, but he's a very wise man, so I don't feel bad about referencing him. Uh, he kind of dismantles uh, this idea that we can apply our own idea of community to the way that we interact with brothers and sisters. He says, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around him will create community. If we set aside our dream of community, the time that we want to allot to others, the type of brothers and sisters that we want to have in our home, how might more of a connected family might we be? How much more of a unified church might we be? How much more might we show Christ to others if we genuinely believed in the power of biblical community? And I know that there are Reasons and circumstances, uh, a lot of which are valid as to why we can't do more of this. But my plea for myself, my plea for my family, my plea for all of you, is to lay those at the feet of Jesus. Pursue the Lord fervently, which I believe will lead to a renewed desire to pursue his people. To pursue the people that you see in this room. Church, would you pray with me? Lord, it is a daunting task at times to think of how we can use more hours of our day, to think of how we can expend our emotional capacity more. Lord, even at times when we feel completely dry ourselves, how can we put forth more for others? Lord, would our weakness be a a wonderful reminder of you? Because it's not on us. It's not entirely on us, Lord. We are a weak 
tired people, but you are a strong God who resides within us and can do far greater than we can imagine for ourselves. Lord, I pray that um, this text, this reality, uh, Lord, would transform our church. Lord, that the relationships in this church would be grown. Lord, that we would be eager uh, to cry on one another's shoulders. Lord, to embrace one another through sorrow. Lord, to share our smiles and laughter with one another. God, would we be a church of one soul and of one heart? Lord, and if that starts with being a repentant church, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be humble enough to call out what is uh, wrong in our lives. Lord, help us to be humble enough to ask for forgiveness. Lord, help us be uh, humble enough to forgive others. Lord, in all things, would we return to you? When we fall short, when others fall short, would we return to you? Would we see your mercy? Would we see your grace? And be quick to show that to others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as a church, uh, we typically uh, leave on a benediction, which we will do today. Um, we typically leave as we recite the Great Commission together, which was Jesus instructing his apostles, but also instructing us as what our purpose, our, uh, the things that we do, what can we go out and do. And so I will read us the whole passage, and you can join in in the words of Jesus. He says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain into which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Have a blessed Sunday, church.